The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 49, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. We know that. And it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed upon them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. Okay, we're in Esther chapter 5 today. We'll do the whole chapter again. Uh, it's the case with most of the chapters of Esther. Esther 5 verses 1 through 14, and this is entitled The Golden Scepter. Verse 1, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Have you noticed there's a lot of really long sentences in the book yeah. of Esther? There you go. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, then that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet... All this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. 
and the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Wow. Wow. I'm guessing that only a complete psychopath goes to bed and sleeps well night after night <laughs> without ever losing any sleep. We all seem to lose sleep for one reason or another. At times we might lose sleep over anticipation of something exciting which lies ahead for us. We might lose sleep over a family feud. Maybe we lose sleep over an argument with a close friend. A guilty conscience will rob us of sleep. A sick baby will too. Like Mordecai, we might lose sleep over an imperial edict that says that our people group is set to be destroyed. Or like Esther, we might lose sleep over being married to the king and finding out that he has authorized this to be done. A complete jerk like Haman might lose sleep over pride because he was not being honored by Mordecai. Or he might lose sleep over the joyous prospect of having him hung on a tree to writhe until dead. The Jewish people are already marked out for destruction. Their time is set and they are to be eliminated. But Haman can no longer stand the punishing embarrassment of being snubbed by Mordecai, and so he miserably looks for comfort with his friends. He has a hope deferred, and the Bible tells us what that means in the book of Proverbs, which is our text verse for today. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Taking the passage that we will look at today, it's almost ironic that the desire fulfilled is compared to a tree of life. One person is supposed to be hung on a tree, and that is intended to give life, at least quality of life, back to another. But in the Bible, concepts such as life and death are often so intermingled that we think we have one, and then we find out that we actually have the other. Haman thinks he will find life through death, but that will be turned upside down. And the opposite will then be true. But if we think that one through, as we will at the end of our time together today, we will find that the life that is granted ends up in death once again, and that death leads to life once again. The mysteries of the Bible are so vast and so deep and rich that it is hard to get them all straight in our heads. How much worse for us when we get them wrong in our doctrine? Paul alludes to that in Romans with the words, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. If that sounds a bit complicated, it is. But with a little bit of thought, or with a bit of paying attention in the Thursday night Bible class at the Superior Word, which I know you all want to start attending immediately, then things will get a little clearer. The point is that we need to be careful as we think through the larger issues found in the Bible. If not, we can go from one small error into many larger errors very quickly. That is why we need to carefully, systematically, and faithfully evaluate the Word of God. It may be tough, it may be mind-numbing at times. Let's scratch that. It is mind-numbing at times, but it will always prove to be the most sound and reasonable path to follow in looking into this magnificent gift of God. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, she found favor in his sight. It's verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, now it happened on the third day. This is now the third day, as was recorded in verse 416, where it said, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It is to be noted again, as we did last week, that the term three days, night, or day is to be taken idiomatically. It is actually not the fourth day now, but the third. The Hebrew says, Be'yom hashalishi, or on the third day, not after three days. It is an important clue when referring to Jesus' words of his being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It is an idiom referring to a period inclusive of, but not necessarily wholly, three days. It is on the third day when, verse 1 continues, that Esther put on her royal robes. Vatubash Esther Malkut. It literally says that Esther put on royalty. 
She has been in mourning garments, indicating woe, affliction, and misery. She could not come before the king in this manner, and so she put on her royalty, meaning the garments and crown of royalty, but also the heirs of royalty. She changed her countenance. She lifted herself up from her state of lowliness, and she walked in confidence instead of mourning and misery. Everything needed to enter the presence of the king was put on in order to come before him in an acceptable manner. Verse 1 continues, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. These words introduce immediately another set of twos. Queen Esther will appear before the king in an unauthorized manner twice. The first is now, and the second will be in verse 8-3. The two contrast. Here, she will bravely stand before the king's presence without approval in order to begin the petition to save her people. In the second, she will mourn with tears before the king, which is not authorized, in order to have the decree of destruction revoked. The two accounts contrast, yes, but they are both confirmed in the action of the king extending to her the royal scepter, signifying his favor. In this verse, the wording is specific. She has placed herself in a position of the inner court of the palace where she would be directly in front of the king's house in order to attract his attention. Verse 1 continues, while the king sat on his royal throne. Of this particular throne, Jameson Fawcett Brown states this, The seat he occupied was not a throne according to our ideas of one, but simply a chair and so high that it required a footstool. It was made of gold or at least inlaid with that metal and covered with splendid tapestry and no one save the king might sit down on it under pain of death. Verse 1 continues in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. The king is in the royal house. It would be a hall with pillars with the throne at the end of the hall at the far end centered between the pillars. From this vantage point he could look out of the house and see anyone standing out there in the court. There would be a sight for his eyes to behold on this momentous morning. Verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. This is a true statement seen throughout scripture and also seen right here in Esther. We could question if this is active or passive, but there's no need. The Lord doesn't need to actively change the heart of the king. We learn this in the book of Exodus with the process used to harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord sets the stage for the turning of the king's heart. It is a passive action and it brings about the intended outcome. The beauty of Esther, the amount of time the king has been without her, the disposition of the court on this particular day, the time and moment of her appearance, all of it has been used to bring about chen, or gracious favor out of the king and direct it towards his queen. Verse 2 continues, And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Here two words introduced in 4.11 are brought into the scene again. She had told Mordecai that unless the golden sharvit or scepter was yashat or extended, the penalty would be death. With the Lord's directing the king's heart towards his chosen queen, the scepter is extended, and both pardon and favor are granted. Of this golden scepter, we again turn to Jameson Fawcett Brown. The golden scepter receives an interesting illustration from the sculptured monuments of Persia and Assyria. In the Bas release of Persepolis, copied by Sir Robert Kerr Porter, we see King Darius enthroned in the midst of his court and walking abroad in equal state. In either case, he carries in his right hand a slender rod or wand about equal in height to his own height, ornamented with a small knob at the summit. What is recorded in the Bible is supported by various monuments of antiquity, verifying that the story is, in fact, reliable. Verse 2 continues, Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. It is by this act which the thankfulness is demonstrated and in which the pardon is received. And yes, a pardon is something which can be turned down, both by man towards God in Christ and by man towards the governing power. The touching of the scepter is as much a part of the process as the extending of the scepter in the first place. Before going on, it would be good to remind you that a pardon has been secured for you through Jesus Christ but you must receive it. 
Have you touched the relief extended to you by God through confession that Jesus Christ is Lord? Of this verse, the Latin Vulgate translation signifies that the touching of the scepter occurred through the kissing of the orb. The second psalm admonishes God's people to kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Should we not heed the call of God in Christ and kiss the son while the time allows his favor? Finally, if you're the studious sort, you might have noticed that the footnotes in your Bible say that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, adds in many, many extra details into verses 1 and 2. It appears as if they have been added in by some overzealous scribe at some point after the original writing. Verse 3, And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? There is an understanding that Esther didn't just come before the king to see how his day was going. Rather, she came with purposeful intent and placed herself in a dangerous position to do so. Understanding this, he makes what might otherwise seem like a foolish or an unwise statement. Verse 3 continues, What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. The word request here has only been seen one time in the Bible so far, back in Ezra chapter 7. It will now be seen seven times in the book of Esther, and it will never be seen again. It signifies a petition or an entreaty. The king is obviously aware that a great need exists or the queen would in no wise have dreamed of coming before the throne unannounced, especially after a full month of time had passed. Understanding this, he not only asks what she wants, but he follows up his words with a most liberal statement indicating that she has received his complete favor. Verse 3 continues, it shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Some scholars chide the statement of the king, including its repetition. But the king already knows that she has something on her mind. She did not come before him to ask for half of the kingdom. She came for something specific, which could still be refused if it has nothing to do with half of the kingdom. Further, the statement is to be taken as hyperbole. It is the king's court, and it is his way of showing the liberality of that court. Such is seen again in Mark chapter 6 at the time of Herod. Here's what it says. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Unfortunately for Herod, his promise was in the presence of people whose value of life was wanting. And so a magnificent bestowal of a request would cover what the girl then asked for, the head of John the Baptist. There was a request that could not be refused. As for Ahasuerus, what grand thing would Queen Esther now ask for? Verse 4. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Esther speaks to the king in the third person. If it pleases the king, and let the king... She will continue to speak to him in this way until her actual appeal is made in chapter 7. Her words, im al hamalech tov, or if to the king good, are identical to the words of Memo Khan in verse 119. She has placed herself in a position as if one of the king's advisors, making a recommendation for his benefit as much as for his approval. Further, this is the first time she has spoken Haman's name, and it is also in the third person. For both, she speaks of having a banquet and desiring them to be in attendance. Instead of stating what she actually desires, she finds an excuse to delay the request. However, the king immediately knows that the banquet is not the request. This can be determined because in verse 6, he will again make the same offer of half his kingdom that he just made. The word used here is the same as used several times previously, mishte, or banquet, rather than merely a feast. It implies that it will be centered on the wine rather than on the food. It is a wise choice on her part, understanding the effects of wine and having those effects displayed at a time when she and Haman were alone with him. Further, it is known that the king and queen normally dined and banqueted separately. To call the king for a banquet would then be a special occasion. For a third person who is not even a relation to be invited would then be considered the highest of honor. It was honoring of the king who had placed Haman in the high position, and it was honoring of Haman who is acknowledged as such by the queen. 
but higher honor now will lead to greater dishonor ahead. In this verse is contained the second acrostic bearing the divine name Yehovah. It is formed by the initial letters of the words Yavo Hamalech Vehaman Hayom, or Come the King and Haman this day. The initial letters reading Yod He Vav He, or YHVH, Yehovah, the divine name. Using the initial letters while going forward indicates the action is being initiated by the Lord through his chosen servant Esther and that he is the determining force which is resulting in Esther's actions. It is the first movement leading towards the final marvelous result. Though the banquet will be held by Esther and though two men have been invited, making three, a fourth presence will be at this banquet as well. The unseen but ever-present Lord is secretly and yet visibly acknowledged as such in this verse. Verse 5, Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. We cannot know if Haman actually knew of Esther's lineage at this point or not, but she couldn't take that chance. In inviting him, she would prevent any suspicion on his behalf, and he could not openly accuse her before the king when she had placed him in such an honorable position. And now that the king has accepted the date and included Haman in his acceptance, the matter is all but settled in regards to her chances of success in the mission which is set before her. Verse 5 continues, So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. The two went together based on the invitation of Esther, but there could be no doubt that the banquet was not the intent of her petition. Instead, it is the means to bring her to stating her intent. This is without a doubt based on the next words. Verse 6, At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Here, yayin, or wine, is specifically mentioned. Esther would have known what happened to Vashti and how the king made his decision while at a banqueting feast of wine. She is using wine as the Bible uses it in symbolism. Wine symbolizes the merging of cultural expressions into a result. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by the wine. It is as if an act of reasoning is occurring and an intended result is realized. Solomon uses wine in Proverbs chapter 9 as a result of the workings of wisdom. Wine represents our reasoning and that which will change our mind. This is exactly what Esther is intending to do, change the mind of the king. And it appears that her perfect time has come for her to do so from the repeated words of the king. Her petition is promised to be granted, even up to half the kingdom, so it shall be done. But instead of stating it immediately, she once again delays the effort in order to come to the perfect time and occasion. Verse 7, then Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. The unseen Lord's direction is evident in the room at this point. Instead of coming out with an answer and another delay is brought forward, it will be a delay which will literally change the entire course of what might otherwise have occurred if she had stated her petition now, as requested by the king. And so, instead of answering, she once again defers the answer. Verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Notice the third person, always speaking in the third person here. It's hard to imagine all the things on her mind at this time, but we can suppose that she was not yet sure of the success of her request based on a single meeting. To ask for another banquet would give her more standing to state what was on her mind, and more in promising that she would respond to the king in the next meeting, it would make the anticipation even greater for him, as he would now wonder what great thing would cause her to first appear before him unannounced and then cause her to delay revealing it twice. Such a scenario might even keep him from sleeping, something which will actually take place as verse 6-1 notes coming soon to a sermon near you. Her desire to keep him in anticipation for one reason will lead to his heightened state of anticipation being used by the Lord for another related reason. The remarkable events which lie ahead are all perfectly timed and orchestrated by the Lord who knows both the mind of man 
and the tendency of those who are affected by various circumstances they face. In the case of Haman, who is being invited for a second time, she will be in a greater position to charge him before the king, and he will be all the more overthrown by the charges so leveled against him. This is evidenced by the words of verse 9, coming soon to a verse near you after a short poetic break. What is your request, precious queen? What is your petition that it may be granted you? Would you like this half or this half of my kingdom or something in between? Tell me, my queen, what for you am I to do? My king, if it is pleasing in your eyes and if it sounds right for you to join in a banquet with me, come with Haman to the banquet. My surprise, we can eat and drink. Everything is set and all is tasty. And then if it is pleasing to the king and if I have found favor in my king's eyes, then come to another banquet tomorrow. If you will do this thing, then I will reveal to you my heart, my petition, I will apprise. Our second thought today is filled with indignation. It's verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. One can almost imagine Haman walking along whistling the tune Top of the World by the Carpenters at this point. He was only behind the king in importance in the realm. He was the only one invited to the banquet held by Esther. He had certainly enjoyed himself at the banquet and he was invited to another one the next day. Everything was blue sky and bright except, verse 9 continues, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate. The words here are very important. He is in the king's gate. Mordecai is once again sitting there in the king's gate. He had obviously set his garments of mourning aside. Then he had once again donned the garments of normal life, which allowed him to sit in the king's gate. This would have galled Haman. How could he be so content when the edict was written and his people were yet awaiting destruction? But there was more. Verse 9 continues, and that he did not stand or tremble before him. This was mandated by the king, as noted in verse 3-2. They were a sign of respect for the office held by Haman, but Mordecai refused to grant them to him. He would not stand, acknowledging his presence, and he would not tremble, acknowledging his greatness. The word zuwa, or tremble, is new and it is rare. Here, it is intended to convey showing fear in the presence of a superior. Verse 9 continues, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Because of Mordecai's lack of respect for Haman and the position he held, he was simply consumed with this hatred of the man. This is shown to be in contrast to the king, whose wrath is noted as rising twice in the book of Esther, but then whose wrath is appeased. Instead, Haman's wrath was raised first in verse 3-5, and it continued to be raised and intensified here in this verse. It shows the depth of the ancient hatred which dwelt within him and which perversely would not subside. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. It's the object of much speculation by scholars as to why he specifically restrained himself. The Jewish nation was set to be destroyed, and so punishing or killing one Jew would hardly matter at all. It may be that he relished in the thought of Mordecai's misery in the months to come as the day of their destruction drew near. Or he may have been concerned that by violating the Purim, or the lots, which had been drawn, he might negatively affect the outcome of the Jews' destruction. Numerous other explanations have been given as well, but the Bible focuses on his purposeful restraint. Instead, he returned home and called for his friends and wife. This was ostensibly to boast, but it will become apparent that more so, he needs consolation. As far as his wife, she is introduced here. The name Zeresh has no meaning in Hebrew. It may be derived from a Persian word for gold, and thus it may mean golden. This verse introduces another set of twos. Here, and in verse 613, he will consult his friends. The two contrast. Here he is consulting them to brag and to seek consoling. His friends will counsel him and how to destroy Mordecai. In the second of the two, he will call them for mourning, and they will reveal that it is Mordecai who will destroy him. The two accounts contrast, certainly, and yet they confirm that the enmity between the two will end in destruction. Verse 11, Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. The word translated as told here is safar. 
It comes from a root meaning to mark as a tally or a record and thus to count. In this, he is recounting all of his achievements and his accumulations. He first speaks of his great wealth, showing that his love of money came first before all other things. This alone shows his immense hatred of the Jews. If you remember, he was willing to deposit an extraordinary amount into the hands of those who would carry out the slaughter of the Jews in order to eliminate them. He next notes the multitude of his children, there being 10 recorded in chapter 9. Herodotus says that next to prowess and arms, the greatest proof of a man's excellence in Persia was to have many sons. It is something that the Bible speaks very highly of as well. In Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. After his sons, he mentions his promotion, even above the other officials and servants. The king favored him, and thus he was highly favored. What other man had such marvelous esteem, position, possession, and wealth? But such bragging inevitably leads to pride. And from there, Proverbs chapter 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman's priorities were wrong, and the things he boasted in were mere vapor, ready to vanish from his grasp as his feet dangled in the Persian sunlight. But he couldn't imagine that, and so the boasting continued. Verse 12, Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Here the word af is translated as moreover. It is a word which signifies a session, as one thing leads to something more elevated. In this, he is noting that of all the greatness he possessed and attained had led to his invitation to the banquet of the queen. She, and certainly therefore everyone else, had acknowledged that he alone was worthy of such honor after the king himself. The author is setting up the very concept of the notion, the greater the ascent, the greater the fall. Haman assumes that he will continue to rise even to unsurpassed greatness, but the author shows that he will fall even to everlasting shame and derision. And with the irony of the ages, the very cause of his downfall is mentioned as the only source of his present unhappiness. Verse 13, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. A single bitter herb buried in a plateful of tasty pleasantries robbed Haman of any delight of his soul. He had no joy while Mordecai was present in his daily life. He had to pass him any time he ventured through the king's gate. But more than just being one loathsome individual, he was a Jew. The hatred of the man led to the hatred of the people. It possessed him and it consumed him, stealing his joy and robbing any sweetness from entering his soul. Everything else was unbalanced and maladjusted because of the presence of Mordecai. And what a perfect verse this is then to make for the third acrostic of the divine name to be hidden. The name is spelled backwards this time, and it is spelled with the final letters of each word. Ze'enenu shove li, or this nothing avails to me. It is just said in verse 9 that he was joyful and with a glad heart. The Lord is overruling his gladness. Further, though not yet known to him, the Lord is turning back his counsel upon himself. These things are expressed by the backward spelling of the name and the use of the final letter in each word. The Lord is there, and he is attentive to working for his people and against the wicked. Verse 14, then his wife Suresh and all of his friends said to him, the verb here is singular, and so it more accurately says, and Suresh his wife said to him and all his friends. It is his wife who leads the advice of what is to be done. One can infer from this that she held sway over him to some extent. What is ironic is that in the garden, the devil had gone to the woman in order to deceive the man. He listened, and it led to the fall of man. In Esther, Haman listened to his wife, and it led to his own downfall. The lesson isn't that women give bad advice. The lesson is that we are to obey the law 
especially God's revealed law above all else, even at the exclusion of what our wife wants. Verse 14 continues, let a gallows be made. The word is ets, a tree. Saying gallows implies uh, hanging by the neck, which is probably not the case. It is the same word used in Esther 2, verse 23, and which probably signifies hanging by crucifixion. The Greek translation of the word is zulon, which is used in Acts 5, verse 30, and in Acts 10, verse 39, when speaking of Jesus being hung on a zulon, a tree. Verse 14 continues, 50 cubits high. 50 cubits is about 75 feet high. This may be a form of hyperbole to signify way up there. However, the number 50 in Scripture has its own meaning. Bollinger defines it as the number of jubilee or deliverance. It is the issue of seven times seven and points to deliverance and rest following on as the result of the perfect consummation of time. Haman is looking for deliverance and rest from Mordecai. Despite the casting of the Purim, they are indicating that this is the perfect consummation of time for his enemy to be destroyed. Regardless of the actual height, in an exceptionally high hanging of Mordecai, it would make the punishment more conspicuous, and it would stand as a warning to anyone else who challenged him. It would also increase the disgrace of Mordecai, and thus it is assumed that Haman's glory would be proportionately increased. In their next words, there is an urgency to the matter, and so the gallows should be erected the same day, in anticipation of the approval of the king. It would be erected and waiting, verse 14 continues, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. All that would be needed is the final approval of the king. By the time it came, it would be simply a matter of having the guards arrest Mordecai and then hang him up on the tree. With that simple task completed, Haman could rejoice in his accomplishments without grieving over his wounded pride any longer. From there, verse 14 continues, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. With Mordecai alive, the meal would be bland. The fruit would be bitter, and the wine would be flavorless. His time at the banquet would be consumed with the thoughts of rage at the wretched Jew who sat smugly at the king's gate, waiting to torment him with his contemptible attitude. But with Mordecai hanging high, he would be filled with joy as he tasted the delights and he drank the ambrosia of victory. The prospect was far too delightful to let pass by. Verse 14 then finishes with these words, And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. The tree for hanging Mordecai was prepared because Haman rejoiced in the thought of the destruction of his enemy. The destruction of the Jews would soon follow and he would be freed of this scourge which haunted him and robbed him of his contentment. Or so he thought. The very tree of his rejoicing would become the tree of his own execution. Of this verse, Adam Clark comments with the following words, and I'd like you to pay very close attention to what he says because this is a giant clue to the book of Esther right here. Adam Clark says, in former times, the Jews were accustomed to burn Haman in effigy. You know what that means? They take a, a figure of Haman and they'd burn him, right? Guess what they did? And with him, a wooden cross, which they pretended to be in memory of that which he had erected for the suspension of Mordecai, but which was in fact to deride the Christian religion. They held Jesus as just as bad as Haman. This was their culture and this was their tradition. And if you go to Israel today, it is still that way. You proselytize in the name of Jesus. If you're a, a Jew believer, they will barbecue you. They put gross things on your doorsteps. They threaten your life. They have little things like fatwas that aren't actually fatwas, but rabbis will put out uh, money to have those people killed because they don't want to hear of the name of Jesus. So we'll go on with this quote here. He says, which he had erected for the suspension of Mordecai, but which was in fact to deride the Christian religion. The emperors Justinian and Theodosius abolished it by their edicts, and the practice has ceased from that time, though the principle from which it sprang still exists, as I just told you, with the same virulence against Christianity and its glorious author. Isn't that interesting? There is in this then tastes of Messiah, even though he is never alluded to in the book of Esther. It is through this people whom he has come, and it would be to this people that he would and will return. But it is also this people who rejected him in the interim. Mordecai is of the tribe of Benjamin and was directly related to Saul, of whom the Bible records that he fell out of favor with the Lord 
In fact, Samuel said this to Saul, so why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul had become the Lord's enemy because of his disobedience towards the command concerning Amalek. Now, a descendant of Amalek, the enemy of the Jews, was set to destroy Mordecai, Saul's relation. But the Lord will rescue him and his people, who would again become his enemy because of their rejection of him. The tree for Mordecai, which became the tree of Haman, whose death resulted in the salvation of the Jews, symbolically became the tree of Jesus Christ. His death resulted in the salvation of the Jews if they would receive it, but they did not Instead, they continued to fight against him, even trying to turn away those who had come to Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, we read the amazing parallel. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's Paul writing to the Galatians. Paul, the spokesman for the Lord, had become the enemy of the Lord's people in Galatia because the Jews had come in and demanded that they turn from salvation of Christ and back to the bondage of the law. But the ironic thing is that Paul is from Benjamin, the same line and heritage as Mordecai. The ironies running through the Bible never seem to cease. Saul became the Lord's enemy in order to maintain favor with his people. Paul became the people's enemy in order to maintain favor with the Lord. And in between them is Mordecai and Esther, who are living out of favor with the Lord in Persia. And yet, being used by the Lord to save his people the same people who would reject him and do to him what they asked to be done to Haman. If this isn't confusing, what is? The point of what we are seeing is that despite unfaithfulness, the Lord may judge and pursue the individual, but he will never break his covenant with the collective. His judgments are intended to bring them back to him, not to utterly destroy them. In his workings, we see the most beneficial attitude toward the masses while displaying his absolute righteousness and justice in the process. And the highest marker of that truth is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Haman's coming death, there will be salvation for the Jews. In Christ's death, there will be salvation for those who receive what he has done and condemnation for those who reject it. In the death of Haman, we see a good thing in that the enemy of the Jews will be destroyed. But his death is only a mere drop compared to that great enemy of all, Jew and Gentile, which is sin. In the death of Jesus, the true enemy is destroyed. The Bible says that Christ Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us remember that the story of Esther, though being dramatic, ironic, numerically compelling, Complex, hidden with secrets, and delightful in its climax is only a picture and a part of what God is doing for the world in Jesus Christ. He is the center and the focal point of all that we must focus on, or the story has no true final purpose and meaning. And the same is true with our lives. We need Christ. We all need Christ. And in the end, it is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'd like to take just a moment, as I do each week, and I would ask anybody that listens to this sermon that if they have not called on Jesus Christ as Lord, that they would do so today. Now, I had a person email this week, or I think she posted on the website, uh, Mike, who does the uh, podcasts. Every week after I put up the sermons and the prophecy updates, he changed them into an audio file, and he posts the podcast. And somebody posted, and he sent me the email from it, and I had to go back and respond on that website. That's why I'm confused. But uh, somebody posted, well, where are the rest of the Esther sermons? She didn't realize that we've just started Esther, and she just started listening to them and thought, I want to listen. He said, you got to wait until next week. And I responded to her as well. They're coming out right now. And I don't know if she's a Jew or a Gentile. I'm sure she's, she's a uh, Gentile, but, you know, I don't know that as a fact. Maybe she just wants to hear the history of Esther. Well, the history of Esther is a part of the history of Jesus Christ, and you cannot disassociate the two. You can't say that I am going to read the book of Esther every single year at the Feast of Purim and make all the noise uh, when Haman is mentioned and do all the things that the Jews do without realizing that there is a greater picture that is being given. And they rejected him. And for years afterward, they would burn Haman in effigy and they would burn a cross. And it was purposeful. 
It was to say that we have rejected this Lord. Now, I had no idea until I read that from Adam Clark. But that's very interesting because they are under sentence right now. They're waiting for the time when they will be brought back to the Lord and he will come and rescue them. And as I said, individuals will perish in the process, but all Israel will be saved. But this is something that they have been going through now for 2,000 years because of their rejection. Imagine yourself as an individual now rejecting the precious blood of Jesus Christ who came to fulfill what these things were only picturing. This is the, the horror of what you will have to face. And so I would pray today that if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord, that you will think about it. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And you know that's true. Ask anybody that has a kid, did you have to tell that kid how to do wrong? And they'll all say, no, I certainly didn't. But you sure had to teach them how to do right because we all have sin already in us. It's an infection in us. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We die because of sin. And there are two types of death that the Bible speaks of. The first is our physical death. That's coming to all of us, but that's not what the Bible is speaking of at that particular concept. He's speaking of the spiritual death, which comes because of sin. We are disconnected from our Heavenly Father. The wages of sin is death. If you don't get the sin which separates you from God taken care of before you have your other type of death, your physical death, you will be separated from God forever. So the Bible says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us his life because he gave up his life for us. But he had no sin of his own, and so he came out of the grave to prove it. He died for our sins, not in his sins. And so the wages of death did not apply to him. The wages of sin, which is death, did not apply to him. It applied to our sins if we receive it. And then the Bible says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all that God wants from you is faith that he actually sent his son into the world to take the sin debt that you and I owe, pictured by all of the things we went through in the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, the Passover lamb back in Exodus, which is repeated in Leviticus, and all of the other sacrificial system. Every one of them pointed to Jesus, and this is what he asks us to think about. And also, after you call on Jesus Christ, I would pray that you don't just become a ship on an ocean being tossed about by uncertain doctrine, but to actually listen to Bible studies. Get into your word and read it. Contemplate it. Meditate on it. Think about it. And when you're reading it, Lord, how does this point to my Savior, Jesus? That is what I would ask you to do. Call on Jesus Christ first. Get right with God. And then learn his magnificent, superior word. Our closing verse comes from Galatians chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That is what he wants. He doesn't want you going out and doing a bunch of stuff like Bill Gates and thinking you've earned your way to heaven. He just wants you to believe that he's done it all already. That's what he asks for is faith. Such a hard thing for us to understand. Next week is Esther 6, 1 through 14. Haman thinks it is him, but it is someone else, and Haman will be a goner. It's entitled, The Man in Whom the King Delights to Honor. That'll be our eighth Esther sermon. And as I do each week, I'd like to remind you, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life. Think of, uh, remember what we read right here today? They went over to England, and they had no plans, no support, nothing, and the Lord used them. Two million people, was it? Two million point one, some, some huge number. Might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem today is called The Golden Scepter. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes instead of some regular blouse and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne, not expecting his spouse, in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter, knowing that things would be all right. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request, a royal sum? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king 
and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for him. Please do this thing, I pray. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared Ed. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. My word is true. Then Esther answered and said, not wishing her chance to miss, my petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request in the hours ahead, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he did not stand or tremble before him. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai, indignation and hate. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home for a little family life, and he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, which made his heart sing, everything which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me, a nifty thing, to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepare Ed, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing. I am filled with hate, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that be hanged on it Mordecai. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Be not dismayed. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Lord God, we thank you for your presence that is with us. Even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our mind and our hearts to seeing you always. Through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O God. And to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful lesson, which even though it never mentions the coming Messiah in this book, it is as clear as the nose on our face when we think it through what is going on. Thank you for this, that he is revealed there for us to discover and to think about the glory that he did being substituted. Imagine a wicked person like Haman, and instead Christ came and died in our place. Thank you for that, Lord God. And we also uh, pray for those that we mentioned at the beginning of this service and uh, the father who dented his head with a tractor and how he is struggling right now. And we would certainly pray that he would be okay. And our brother who is going through difficult times with his spouse, we pray for him and uh, what's going on there. And we would pray that there would be uh, cooler heads prevailing, that there would be uh, harmony and understanding that you have ordained marriage between a man and a woman for good or for bad. My poor wife has had to put up with me all these years. And you know that, Lord. She's been so faithful during the times where I have not been the great man that I should be. Lord, help us to be honoring of one another. Help us to hold you in the highest of esteem. And above all, help us to treasure your word, your superior word, which tells us of Jesus, our Lord. Oh, God, thank you for Jesus and all he means to us. And we praise you in his name. Amen. Amen. That is ironic. Isn't it? The whole thing. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's astonishing. The whole thing. You just And you go back and read it again. And even after typing it, I set it aside for eight or nine weeks. And I get back there and I think... It's just marvelous how ironic the Bible is. And, you know, but irony is nothing that we possess, we possess apart from the Lord. So he is the author of irony. He's the author of comedy. Like I tell people, just look at a squirrel and you know that he has a sense of humor, right? So when we see irony in the Bible, it's because he's trying to show us something that we will grasp from our own ironic minds when we develop things that are you know, whatever. So uh, you're right. It's a marvelous, marvelous treasure that he's given us. And it's revealed in this beautiful way that every, every you know, Leviticus is completely different than Esther. And yet Jesus shines through. Remember Jonah? I'm, Jonah had nothing to do with Ruth and has nothing to do with Esther. They're completely different. And yet every time you get into the book, there's Jesus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Lord is using every single means and method possible to wake people up to his glory. That's wonderful. Oops, I better not have these off. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. We get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there, uh, Paul wrote these words to us. He said, um, 
for I wrote, uh, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over this. He would have said, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Amotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord, or God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed this also. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good though. It's got that. It's a new one. Oh, good. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love that shirt, Brother Bob. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get way too many. Mm. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Of that tie. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Still gluten-free. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. So I forgot the, uh, I mean, I got rid of finally last week, the old, and we got the one with the uh, much tastier this week. It's got the burnt onion in there and really good. So uh, That one, last one was so plain. I was like, I hope we get done with this soon. So anyway, um, well, let's see. Anything else? I can't think of anything. Esther chapter six next week. And uh, uh, I, I hope people are enjoying this online. I'm really loving this Esther sermon. I, I got to tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm really loving it. So. Anyway, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the people that attend, whether they're here or whether they're somewhere else. I would ask that you would bless each and every person out there with a big blessing in their heart and in their soul in the week ahead. And those who are downtrodden for whatever reason, please lift them up. Be with them. Help them to remember that you are there. 
just as in your word twice, the unseen Lord is hidden right there in the acrostics. You're just as present with us right now. There's no doubt about it. If we just keep our minds on that, the, you, we are always in your presence and you are always here with us. Wow, wouldn't that help our lives if we kept that in our mind? So help us to keep that in our mind during all the times of trouble and trial. Then we'll be sure to praise you and give you the glory that you're due and we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.